I'm going to piggyback off of that prayer request there for uh, that sister. The word that was used was stubborn. I want to use the word stuck. How long does it take for us as people to get stuck in our ways? Yeah, I was thinking we should measure it in seconds. I think minutes might be a little bit too long. We think something, and immediately that becomes like the vantage point that we operate from. Well, no, that's not how I was thinking. Or, yeah, but we're just instantly in our own ways. What happens if you live as a family in a home for many years? Think of all the things that become the way you do it. Probably you have the certain chair that you sit at, at the kitchen or dining room table. Probably you have certain rooms that you go to. Probably certain routines, get up around a certain time, do certain things. Probably certain things happen on Saturdays, your day off from work, errands. You just routines, routines, the way you do it. How long does it take, though, for that to get stuck in a way that you can't even step out of. This happens with parents and children. We develop the relationship, and it has to be this way for a while, where parents treat their kids like kids. And then eventually the kids outgrow that. Now the kids are peer adults. How easy or hard is it to not be a kid to your parent? How easy or hard is it to not parent your kid, regardless of what age they are? We get into routines and patterns, and they just, we get stuck there. How about as a church? How long does it take a church to develop its traditions and have its way of doing things the right way, the way we've always done it around here? How long do you think that takes? Not long, probably. How about with some of these missional communities that we're starting up? They're in homes, so they're all new. Anything could happen. How long do you think it'll take before they just have a way they do what they do? Not long. I can speak from experience having grown up in this church as a little boy and now leading this church and seeing its life cycle from the very first days to today. If we're 30 whatever years old now, that's plenty of time for a church to have the way it does things and then to get stuck in it. So we find ourselves in this particular year is trying to ask the big questions again to make sure that we're not stuck in things that are holding us back from growing in our faith, holding us back. We don't want that because if the things you're stuck in are like, man, I'm stuck in helping the homeless. I'm really stuck in giving 90% of my salary away every year. I'm really stuck in being the most generous, kind, loving person. Like, stay stuck. That's okay. Right? But we're not usually in that. We're usually stuck in, man, I'm too busy. I'm at work all day, every day, and then I come home, we've got kids, and we've got stuff. I don't really have any time. I'm stuck in that hamster wheel. Uh, we go to church, you know, I don't have any free time, but I can't give up any of my time on Sunday mornings because you know, there's no other time that I get to come together to worship, but I can't do anything other times, so we've got this, but we can't give that up to do something else because it's stuck. What if you were busy 24-7 except for Sunday morning? But Sunday morning wasn't allowed to change ever. What if that was your only chance to go and serve your community? Would it be wrong to never have another worship service if you were taking a couple of hours every Sunday morning all year long to serve? I don't think you'd say it was wrong. But then if we step into it, or say like step into it, would we do it? The minute you say, well, you're going to do it then, it's like, well, well I, I don't know because, you know, I, I look forward to that worship time and it's comfortable and it feeds me and I need that and I'm at work all week with non-Christians and it's so good to hear the word and to be in the, you know, we just get stuck in certain ways of doing things. So I use Sunday morning because it's an easy way to get people upset and it's an easy example to use. But it's not the point of the sermon. 
The point is, the earliest Christians found that 30 to 50 years was also plenty of time for them to get stuck. We read the Gospels, and then we read the letters. Actually, what happened during Jesus' walking around time And then we read letters to churches that were formed immediately after that, but these letters were written to them in, you know, their 20th year, 30th year, 50th year. But the letters are all, like, corrective. (laughs) They're not, good job, you just learned about Jesus, you're still doing it right. They're letters like, have you guys already forgotten what Jesus told you? You're all about the business of doing things right, but you've got no love anymore. You lost your first love. Like, oh, man, that's convicting to me if Christians 30 years removed from Jesus's own resurrection are getting stuck and going through the motions how much easier is it going to be for us 2,000 years removed from that to go through the motions of whatever those 2,000 years of church and tradition and experience and world history has given to us got a lot more stuff to wade through they were right there but even right there they needed to be reminded reset reset Back to Jesus, only Jesus, remember Christ. And so this whole year for us has been asking some of those questions. And in the back of my mind, I've always thought that I would really like to um, take a sermon or two, and we're going to take two, so this is part one, next week we'll finish it, and go through the letters that John wrote to the seven churches in Asia at that time, modern-day Turkey, seven Christian churches This is written probably in the 90s, although some discrepancy there. So maybe like 60 years, 50 years after Jesus (laughs) rose from the dead. The letters to them are already, you're forgetting where you started. Reset, reset, back to Jesus. And so for us talking about what church is, what missional church looks like, what do Sundays look like, what does our influence in the world look like, I wanted to read these letters because I feel like they speak specifically to us. So these two sermons kind of represent the closing bookend on an entire year of preaching about what it looks like to be missional. This will still be a theme. We're going to be missional. We're going to be acting out, living it out. But we're heading now into Thanksgiving, so we'll probably have a couple of services that will revolve around that. Then we'll have Christmas, and that'll be celebrating the Incarnation. And then in the beginning of the new year, Jacob and I are going to be working together to try to preach through uh, all the books of the Bible sequentially. So probably a two-year chunk where we take one week for some books, a couple of weeks for some books. But we want to equip the church with everything that God says from beginning to end. So if you've ever wanted to read through the Bible, we're going to be encouraging the church to join us in that over the next couple of years. And hopefully if we spread it over a couple, it won't be too daunting of a task. Uh, For any of you who've tried to read through the Bible in a year, you know it's a real commitment. There's a lot of reading every single day to make sure it gets done. But regardless of whether you take that challenge or not, week by week, we're going to walk through the whole thing and see what God's redemptive story means for us. His mission, our mission. And we'll see how that ties together. So... These letters to the churches in Revelation are something I've been looking forward to, represent the end of this very specific missional church sermon series that's been the better part of a year, and uh, I think they specifically speak to us. So if you would turn to Revelation, if you haven't already, um, I'd like to read through chapter one as the preface, and then what you're going to see in chapters two and three is there's seven churches, so we'll do the first four today. And we'll do the last three next week. They each represent different personalities. Now, 
you guys talked about going down south, moving. Many of us have moved to different places, and you try to find churches. So you visit here, you visit there. Each church has its own unique culture, right? It has like a personality made up by the people that are in it, the ages of the people in it, the type of music that's, the, what the, all this stuff makes a culture. But for that reason, each church has strengths and weaknesses just like us as people. Things that a certain church would be good at, things that certain churches would be poor at. And they kind of grow along those lines. I think churches have to find their spiritual gifts just like people do. So these letters that we're going to see are part of a vision that was given to John where Jesus spoke specifically to John and said, write these things down. Seven different thoughts for seven different types of Christians, seven different types of churches. And I hope as we read through them, we'll identify with certain ones personally. Some of them might just have New Hope written all over them. So we'll just say, all right, this is us. We see it. But some of them might be us individually. I think this is me. And I hope in that case that you won't feel badly that you've gotten two steps off to the right or to the left. That'll just be the reminder that the Bible is supposed to be to get us back centered to where we want to be, to where Jesus wants us to be. So the revelation that's given to John, it's this vision that he has. Jesus speaks to him. He writes it down. He has these letters to the churches. And then after that, he goes on with all the prophecies about the end times. So that's not the focus of this sermon series. The focus of this series is the first three chapters only, the letters to the churches. It was just such a short time after Jesus, they had already gotten off track, and we don't want to get off track. So just uh, let's let the Bible speak for itself. Let's hear Jesus' heart for his church. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who then wrote it down, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That gets to be me this morning. That gets to be you, right? Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. For the time is near. You know, life is short. This world will not go on forever. So keep that in mind. Don't just listen, but do it. Read it, hear it, do it. This is a, uh, a chapter, two chapters, all about listening. I hope we will listen. So John says, uh, his introduction. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Like I said, modern day Turkey. All these seven cities, seven churches are in modern day Turkey. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen." Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus' words here. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John says, so I, John, your brother and your partner in this suffering and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos. Because of the word of God. So he was exiled there. Because of his preaching the word, he got sent to this island. 
I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So this is a Sunday. It's not the Sabbath. It's the Lord's day, this day. And he was in the spirit. So he was praying. He was in the moment with his father, just praying in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. But then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of these lampstands, one like a son of man, Jesus clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool and white as snow. His feet were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he holds seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive. Furthermore, I have the keys to death in Hades. So write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those things that are and those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So this is the vision. It's just an introduction. He hears this voice. He turns around. It's Jesus. I'm the one who died. I'm here. I want to speak to you because I have a message for my people. Don't you love how he calls churches lampstands? That's the perfect definition of a church. A tall stand to put something else on that burns brightly for the world to see. Light in the darkness. It's like a lighthouse, you know, only it's even better than that because the lighthouse is the light. A lampstand isn't the light. We're just holding up Jesus. Jesus has hope. He has light. So we try to hold it up. Our churches try to hold it up. And sometimes we're terrible lampstands. We do a terrible job of loving God and loving our neighbor. We don't hold up the light of Christ the way we should. But when we do, it makes the world around us brighter. So these seven lampstands, perfect definition of church, and then seven angels. Whether they're the pastors there, because the word for angel is also messenger. So it could be a translation thing that it's the seven leaders, seven teachers of those churches, or whether there's specifically like a guardian angel, because we know sometimes the Bible talks about angels being in certain places at certain times for God's people. We'll let that be part of John's mystery. You can ask him when you see him in heaven face to face. But the whole book is full of these symbols and imagery to describe what is and what is to come. But the whole point of it is that Jesus sees his churches, and he knows what they're meant to look like. He knows what church is supposed to be. And he looks down on them so soon after his resurrection, and he's just like, ay, yeah, yeah, like, what are you doing? Like, I just, I was just there like five seconds ago, guys. In the grand scheme, I've been here before the universe and after, like, in the grand scheme, I was just there. What are you doing? Oh, you're just people. Oh, you're flawed. Oh, you're weak. Well, actually, I know that. That's why I died for you. So here, let me just remind you who you're supposed to be. So these seven letters are who we're supposed to be. These seven letters are warnings about how we all go off track, but they're supposed to reset us back. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give kind of like a phrase to help you identify what each one's going to be about, and then we'll read it. So the first one is about all those Christians, whether it's us individually or whether it's our whole church, who are loyal but loveless. That's a real thing. And if you haven't experienced that, it's really cold. 
You encounter someone who says that they love the Lord and they're living a very righteous, sort of legalistic life, doing everything right. They're very quick to point out to the people all around them all the things everyone else is doing wrong. There isn't one drop of love that you can feel in it. And so you should be identifying with these people like, you're my people, we're Christians, and instead you just feel like cold. No love. All knowledge, all fact, all wrath of God, all holiness with no compassion and no love of Christ. So Jesus sees one of his churches being really good by the letter of the law and failing at the love test. And he says, let's call a spade a spade, church. This is where you're at. Turn back. So this is the letter that gets sent to Ephesus. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. Okay, they've got works. I know your toil. Okay, they're struggling. I know your patient endurance. All right, they're putting up with a lot. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently, you are bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. These are the people that are just like gritting their teeth and like trudging ahead bitterly in their faith. He says, but I have this against you. I have this against you. We're not together in this. Verse 4. You have abandoned the love that you had. All this truth and power that you are exerting now actually began with my love for you and you loving each other. You've abandoned the love you had at first. So remember, therefore, from how high you have fallen. Turn around and do the kinds of things you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you turn around. Yet this I have against, or yet, yet this you have, like to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't, aren't given any definition of who these people are. So you can think back to Old Testament, whether there was infant sacrifices or certain things that God says that he just detests the abominations. You'll have to leave that to another question we ask John when we see him in heaven. But there were a group of people that were evil, and the church was just like fighting against that and hating that evil in the world. And Jesus says, we're on the same page with that. So he closes with, listen up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Are you, am I, a Christian who knows what they're supposed to do, knows what everyone else is supposed to do, and is so locked into it that we're fighting for truth, but we have no love? It can happen. And it can start even in a place of love and end up in a place of legalism and law. If you've found yourself there, if I've found myself there, we need to say, I'm sorry, Jesus, because that's not how he did it. He died for people who hated him. We're supposed to be like that. That's the grace that overcomes sin. If you're there, be careful. Don't want Jesus to say, all right, I'll take your church away from you. If that's what you're going to do with my lamp, my light, your lampstand, gone. We cannot be that church. It's got to be love first. Everything else built on that. All right, a second type of church. Uh, these people are faithful, but they're fearful. Maybe this is us as a church. Maybe we're afraid of what might happen. Maybe this is us as Christians in America, not knowing what the tide of politics is going to do as it turns over time. Maybe this is us not knowing how we're going to pay our rent. 
Maybe this is us not knowing if we can share our faith with our family. Faithful, yeah, following Christ, but afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid. So this is the church in Smyrna, and this is the letter that he writes to them. So to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, these are the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty. All right, so they're, they're suffering. It's real. He says, but you're actually rich. God's got you. He's got everything. You have so much, but I know the earthly trials that you're in. And I know the slander of those who say that they're of the Jews and are not. They're the synagogue of Satan. So people who are trying to distort, distort excuse me, the word of God. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Imagine getting this letter before that happens. The letter got to the church. Behold, some of you are about to be thrown into prison. You, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have that trial. Be faithful. Faithful even unto death. And then I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So if any of us have found ourselves so afraid of what's going to happen to our kids, so afraid of what's going to happen to our church, so afraid of what's going to happen to our finances, so afraid of what's going to happen to our country, so afraid of what's going to happen politically, so afraid of what's going to happen to the environment, like Jesus is before that and after that. He knows what's coming and he sees our struggles, but he says, don't be afraid because I'm the one in charge. Just live in faith. Trust me to take care of you. And when you get thrown into prison, be willing to even die for your faith. Because that's the worst they can do to you is just kill you. And I've got you after that. So be faithful, but drop the fear. The third one, the church in Pergamum. These are the people who are good at kind of identifying with Christ, but they've become <coughs> compromised. They've conformed to the world. So this probably appeals or applies to a lot of us in kind of our, our very comfortable American Christianity. We identify as Christian, but then we've also like adopted all the soup of bad stuff that our culture gives us, and we're just like the same as everyone around us. People would look at us and say, we don't actually look that different than our neighbors. That sort of Christian is the kind of Christian that Jesus saw in his church in Pergamum. You know, they're, they're Christian, they take the name, but they're conformed. And Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. They are. So to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, like your city. I know where you're at. I know the culture that you live in, where Satan's throne is. So he's like, the place you live is bad. I recognize that. I see where you live. Yet you do hold fast to my name. Say, I'm a Christian, even when it's unpopular to say. All right, so Jesus sees that in this church. And you didn't even deny my faith in those, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So there are Christians in a city where this Christian Antipas was martyred because he said it. And they're still, they're, they're hanging on to Christ. They're standing for it, even when it could mean their own death. But I do have a few things against you because you have some there that hold to the teaching of Balaam who told Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of Nicolaitans. Therefore, turn around, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'll be against you, Jesus says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone, a new name written upon that stone. And no one knows 
that no one knows except the one who receives it. So I will give you everything you need. Don't go to all these other temples, all these other religions for the magic items that they're going to give you. Come to me. I'll give you the things that last. I know you. You're mine. You know, I'll give you the identity, a new name written on our hearts. They're finding this in all the religions around them. Would we say that there's a fair chance that Christians in America are falling into all the same sexual immorality that the culture around them is just reveling in? I think it's a very fair thing to say for all of us in ways that we get trapped into things like pornography, which are like a kind of a hidden thing or like outright just lifestyle choices. The church gets corrupted by being in Satan's town. It happens. The key is to recognize it and say, ah, I'm becoming like these people that I'm supposed to be loving and helping them to become more like Christ. I'm becoming less and less like this Christ that I'm supposed to be willing to die for, and I look exactly like my neighbor. And all my religious practices and all maybe my non-religious practices, my relationships, my finance, he's saying, you're supposed to be mine. And yet you're just taking some of this from there, some of this from there, just Jesus, just Jesus, 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 period. And the more we like him, the more we'll be a light for him, the more we'll change our city for his glory, build his kingdom here on earth. So if that's our church, if we're adopting just the customs of our day and age and not standing for Christ, then we're losing the light that we have to offer. That's all we've got to offer is Jesus. So the more that, the more light we've got. The more compromised that becomes, the more we just conform to, well, this is what church is supposed to be. Every church looks like this. This is the way services go. This time of the day in this kind of a building. This is the kind of music that we sing. This is just the way church is done now. This is the way Christians live now. Oh, that's just then what's different? Why would anybody want to see Jesus as a hope of an alternative lifestyle if all the Christians they know look exactly like that? Jesus is like, ah, you're my church. You're supposed to be my church. You're my kids. You're my body. You're supposed to look like me. You're starting to dress and talk and act like the neighbors. <laughs> but I'm giving you your name. You're named after me. You've got my DNA. You're my family. This is how our family operates. These are our family house rules. Remember? And you've got ears to hear, listen. So this is for us to just constantly be reevaluating, hold up the mirror and say, in what ways do we stand for Jesus? When we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that what our life looks like? Or does that feel like something that could never be? When we look at our neighbor as a non-believer and compare it with ourselves, do we look exactly the same? Or are we different in like the most important, beautiful kind of ways? That's the question for the church in Pergamum. So here's our fourth, final church. This church has taken on the teachings of someone who the author calls Jezebel, uh, who's a false prophet. So Jesus commends them for all the stuff. They've got the works, and they actually do have the love, which is what Ephesus missed. So they've got all these things. He even says you're growing, like you're getting better and better all the time. But they've bought into the teaching of this person who's not speaking on behalf of God. So they've been deceived. So the way I'm kind of picturing these people is they're very devoted, but they're deceived. Devoted but to see. And this can happen to any of us. A teacher teach, teaches something to us. We hear something. We read something in a book. We read a blog. Somebody gives us something. Like, it drops into our head. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, it changes the way we think. That can happen for good or for ill. The way to protect against that is to take that thought and then compare it back to here to the thing we know to be true and say, does it measure up or not? But they kind of bought into this teaching of this woman. And it's infiltrating their ranks. And so he's like, you got to cut that person and their teaching out. 
you're being deceived. You're buying into a lie. It's not from me. You think this person's from me. The person does not speak on my behalf. So this is the last of the four letters that we'll look at this morning. To the church in Thyatira. To the angel in the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus says to your church, Thyatira, I know your works. Good, they've got some good works. I know your love. All right, they've got love. I know your faith and your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. Like you're getting better and better in love and in work and all this. It's good. But he sees this like danger up ahead for them. And this is their warning. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. But she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of the sexual immorality. So behold, I will throw her out onto a sickbed. And those who committed adultery with her, I will throw into a great tribulation unless they turn around, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Ouch. Uh, Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Just hang on. Hold fast to what you have until I come. Now the one who conquers and the one who keeps my works, keeps doing my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are many people who will be the latest, greatest, newest Bible teacher. And they have all these deep new insights from the Word, and they they can't get famous fast enough. They can't write enough books and tour the speaking circuit quick enough to only look at their lives a few years later and realize that was a charade or they were the thing that sprung up quickly and then died the way Jesus compares some people in their faith. The so-called deep teaching, someone has a new profound revelation. What more do you need than what the Bible says? It's plenty deep without having someone come and say, I know deeper things. Come, let me make you my apprentice, and I will show you the deep things. Or someone who says, yes, let's come and commit all these things that the Bible would call sins, but by doing so, we're becoming more like God. I'm speaking on his behalf. When a person tells us to sin, we say, the Bible doesn't allow me. I don't want that. You're not leading me. You don't speak for God. When someone springs up quickly, and we measure their words against the word of God, We should either see a big yes and amen or a big red warning. Caution. Stop. Slow down. The Bible says test everything. So I would just ask each of us, who are we reading? Who are your favorite Christian authors? Because they're teaching you. Whether they're fiction authors or non, those people are teaching you how to think about God, how to think about Jesus, how to think about the world. Who are the podcasts that you listen to? Those are your teachers. Always make them secondary teachers. This book has to be your teacher. I can even be a secondary teacher. I found something here that I think is valuable. Can I show it to you? And then measure what I say against what it says and let God be the one who speaks. And if I turn out to be a false prophet, 
then call me out and kick me out because your lampstand depends upon this body of Christ maintaining its allegiance to Jesus, not to Dave Stratton, whoever the next pastor is going to be, or a thousand years from now, whoever that pastor will be, right? It's the job of the church body to say, are we sticking to Jesus? So I give you those four people. There's the ones that are loyal, but they're legalistic. There are the ones that are really faithful, but they're afraid, so they're actually lacking faith. <laughs> the ones, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it just looked like the world. And then there's last group here, the ones that um, they're really devoted in lots of ways, but they're being deceived because they're not paying enough attention to who they're letting teach them. Let's take these four things. We'll add three on next week to make sure that we are the kind of church that Jesus will be proud of and that will shine brightly in our community. Music team, would you come forward? I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, and then we'll close with a song. Jesus, please come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And when you come, may we be found in you to be pure of heart. May we be found to be, yes, sinful, but repentant, seeking you in all the areas where you convict us, wanting you more than we want to do things the way we do them, wanting you more than we want our comfortability. Help us with fear. Help us with our, our conformity to this world. Help us with the ways that we're deceived. Help us with the ways that we might be loveless. Let your words speak to us and give us ears to hear what you're saying to this church, in this day, in this city. We pray in Jesus' name.